Thanks for joining us at Fort William Baptist Church in Thunder Bay, Ontario. We are currently working through the book of 1 Thessalonians. In this book, we see the heart of Paul for God's people. It's a yearning for them to walk in the will of God and have close fellowship with the Spirit. As we delve into this book, we will see Paul's burden that the people find refreshment in the God who loves them, that they would fix their thoughts on God's coming, and that they would live lives that please Him, knowing how to live with and before the Holy God. Continue on this morning in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and so if you grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The text we'll be reading, verses 9 through 12. So as we've been working through the book of 1 Thessalonians, we've been learning some important things about the Thessalonians. We've learned that they are spiritual people. The Spirit is at work in their midst. We've seen the fruit of the Spirit, faith, hope, love. We've learned that they are loved by God, even chosen by God. We've learned that they're imitators of Paul and of Jesus and that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, has been producing joy in them as they experience affliction. We've learned that they've been truly converted. They were serving idols and now they serve God and they wait for Jesus who's going to deliver them from the wrath to come. And in our four verses this morning, we're going to learn something else about these Thessalonians. They are called, called by God. And so hear the word of God this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, And encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's pray. Father, we believe you are the God who is at work in this world. You created all things and through your son you sustain all things. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And we believe this morning that you are work, you are at work in our midst. You are the God who speaks in the midst of the preaching of your gospel, calling sinners to yourself. And so we ask that you would be so pleased to do that very thing this morning. So we ask, speak, O God, for we are your people and we are listening to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are used to the Apostle Paul, aren't we? He's a bit like that piece of furniture that has been sitting in your living room for years. You know it well. You know its color, you know its texture, you know how it feels when you you sit on, and, and that's the way the Apostle Paul seems to us sometimes. Paul is normal and standard and stock. He is a fixed part of our, our New Testament. He takes up a good chunk of biblical real estate, and because of that, we don't find the Apostle Paul all that unusual or demanding or difficult or odd. 
And though we might find some of the things that Paul said hard to understand, as a whole, we are well acquainted with the Apostle Paul. We know his story. We know his writings. However, this is not how Paul would have been understood in his own day by his own contemporaries. During his own life, there was no New Testament like we have. There was no formal collection of his 13 letters. His life story wasn't published in the Bible that could easily be read by everyone. There was nothing normal or standard or stock about the Apostle Paul. He would have been viewed as unusual, difficult, demanding, odd, and especially so to the Thessalonians. And so the first order of business this morning as we look into our four verses is to see just how odd Paul would have appeared to the Thessalonians. And so we can start with this piece of information. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. To use other words, Paul was an authorized ambassador of King Jesus. Just let that sink in for a moment. The one who died and rose again, the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father, the one who is the king of the, the, the king of the kings of the rulers on earth, this one who has been given the name above all names, this one set apart Paul to be his official representative and to bear his word and message and name to the nations. As we let that sink in, that's a glorious task. Even more, that is a calling of dignity and importance. I don't think I can think of a greater calling known to man than being an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, certain expectations come with such dignity and importance. Just think about it. An ambassador doesn't sleep in Motel 6 or eat breakfast at the local Greasy Spoon Diner. He doesn't have to rent a car or take a crap tab to, cab to get across town. He doesn't hang out with the common folk sharing their struggles and interests. Rather, he is received when he comes somewhere with pomp. And he's escorted into the nicest place in town where he sits down with only the most important people and they listen to what he has to say as he speaks the word of his king. When I was in seminary, George W. Bush's presidential library was opened. And that library that was built was right next to the seminary. There's only a freeway in between the seminary and George W. Bush's presidential library. And for the grand opening, there was a bunch of hoopla. And the biggest part of the grand opening was then President Obama was coming into town for it. And it was quite the thing to behold. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that before. And I had a front row seat to all of it from the seminary windows. So before the president came, there were helicopters flying everywhere, and the police showed up, and they started blocking off every single street. And as the the time grew closer to the president's arrival, all of a sudden you could see snipers perched on the rooftop of almost every single building with their rifles pointed out, analyzing and gazing at everything going on. And then the black limos rolled in, and you could see them coming. And it was the strangest thing. The whole city came to a stop. Dallas was a busy city, always a buzz, traffic always. But when the president came, everything stopped. And as you think about it, that's a welcome worthy of a president. That's par for the course. Important people are treated differently. But as we can think about Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul was odd, This ambassador wasn't to be found in any of the important places in in Thessalonica, and he wasn't surrounded by any of the important people either. 
Rather, Paul was to be found, except on the Sabbath, at work. And this wasn't any special sort of work. He was a tent maker. He, he worked with his hands, cutting and, and tooling and sewing together pieces of leather. And this work consumed Paul's life. Verse 9, he says, we worked night and day. Paul was up before dawn, rising early, and then he toiled throughout the entirety of the day at his trade. And this was difficult work. It was no easy work. Paul specifies the difficulty of his work in verse 9. He says, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. And most of those who became Christians would have likely encountered Paul in this setting. They would have met the ambassador of King Jesus with an apron on, sweaty and stinky from all of his work. And it was in this setting, among all the noise and all the busyness, that many would have heard the word of King Jesus for the very first time. The Thessalonians would have viewed Paul as an average workaday guy. He had to pay rent. He had to buy groceries. He had to negotiate business deals. He had to work hard and then sell his goods so that he could live. And all of this made Paul really odd. Ambassadors of kings don't act like this. But the oddities don't stop there. Usually the more important someone becomes, the more aloof they become. And this happens in part because of the weighty decisions they have to bear and have to make. And and when they're making these decisions, they have to be with all the important people who, who have a word about these decisions. But not only that... When somebody becomes important, they become selective in who they they let into their lives. They're known by everyone. They're known by all. And so they only let a few people have close and, and personal access to them. But here too, Paul was odd. This ambassador of this great king wasn't aloof, nor did he restrict access into his life. His heart burned for the Thessalonian believers. Chapter 2, verse 8. Paul speaks of a boiling heart. He says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. And this affection came out in some very particular and surprising ways. So deep was Paul's concern for these believers that he became a mother to them in the gospel of Jesus. He nurtured them, he fed them just as a mother breastfeeds her children, chapter 2, verse 7. And he also became a father to them in the gospel of Jesus, chapter 2, verse 11. And as any good father does, he concerned himself with all parts of their lives. So invested in Paul is that he spent his time exhorting them and encouraging them and charging them. So dear were they to Paul that he was unafraid to meddle in the particularities of their lives, insisting again and again, as a good father does, you must live out the will of God. And again, as we think about Paul, he was odd. Ambassadors of great kings don't act like that. They don't take personal concern in the lives of common people. So here's this description of Paul for you as the Thessalonians would have been wrestling with him. And so we ask, well, why did Paul act like this? Why did he act like this? Was this the fruit of some eccentricity in his, his character Was this behavior of a desperate man? Was this random or happenstance? 
But as we look into our text, it becomes clear that Paul's behavior among the Thessalonians was intentional. The labor, the toil, the long days, starting before sunrise, stretching on well into the latter parts of the day, the close personal relationships, the mothering, the fathering, all of it was carefully calculated by Paul. Paul puts it like this in verse 10. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Paul is essentially saying in verse 10 that his, his conduct of ministry was good and right and holy, pleasing to God. Or to put it in really simple terms, Paul was just doing what God told him to. And as we think about this description of Paul I gave you, there is really good reason for why Paul acted like this. Paul carried an unusual burden. His gospel preaching, his church planting efforts, all of it was pioneer work. He was working where no one else had worked before. No one had tilled this ground. The people in Thessalonica had never met a Christian before Paul showed up in their city. And so Paul had the burden not just to to preach the gospel of Jesus and explain that there is only one true God and that they must turn away from all the idols and that, that Jesus died and he rose again and he is coming and he will deliver you from the wrath to come if you trust in him and serve him. He also had the job to show them, tangibly show them what a disciple of Jesus looks like, what a Christian looks like. And this is why Paul talks about himself so much in chapter 2. Have you noticed that? The bulk of chapter 2 is all about Paul. He talks about his coming to the Thessalonians in verse 1. He talks about his suffering and his preaching in in verse 2. He reveals the motivations of his ministry in verse 5 and verse 6 and the affections of his heart in verse 8. He reminds them of his hard work, his labor and toil in verse 9 and all the close attention he gave them in verses 11 and 12. And as Paul's doing this, he isn't sticking his chest out in pride, nor is this some random tangent that's self-consumed. Rather, Paul details his behavior for these believers so that they might be reminded, even in his absence, of what a Christian looks like and acts like. And so from these four verses, verses 9 through 12, I want to draw out and I want to set before you two descriptions of what a Christian looks like from what Paul is saying about himself. So the first description is this. A Christian is a giver, not a taker. A Christian is a giver, not a taker. So Paul stresses this. He worked hard among the Thessalonians. He labored, he toiled, he worked night and day, and Paul did this for a reason. Verse 9, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul is saying that he came to this city, he came among these people so he could give to them and not take from them. And this is further evidence in the imagery that Paul uses throughout chapter 2. We know from experience that moms and dads don't take from their children, instead they only give to their children. A mom feeds her children day after day after day And she never, at the end of the meal, brings a slip saying, here, this is what you owe me. That would be ridiculous. And the same for a father. A father provides for his children year after year after year after year. And he never comes with a bill to his children saying, this is what you owe me. No, parents give. And they give without a thought of getting paid back for it. And this is Paul's vision for the Christian life. He gives specific instruction about this at the end of the letter. 
chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. He says this, But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you might walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And these verses are remarkable. Because what Paul is doing is he is commanding the Thessalonians to imitate him. He's calling them to imitate him of what he described of himself in chapter 2. There's something else remarkable about these verses. Paul was a preacher. And certainly he covered the great heads of theology. He he preached about the cross. He preached about Jesus' resurrection. He preached about Jesus' coming. He preached about God's glorious kingdom and God's reign and rule over the earth. But Paul's preaching didn't stop there. Did you catch what he said? Work with your hands as we instructed you. What was Paul preaching alongside the cross and the resurrection and God's kingdom? He was preaching about hard work. And Paul took this matter of hard work seriously. When he learned that there were some in the church in, in Thessalonica who despite all of the instruction, beside all the encouragement and admonishment, despite all of this, they remained idle, refusing to work hard, Paul gave some hard instructions to the church. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says this concerning the idol. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. What is Paul saying? He's saying this, I forbid charity, even the giving of a meal, to those who belong to Jesus Christ and they refuse to work. And this might seem extreme to us, but Paul goes even further. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. And we know what that tradition is, hard work. So what does Paul do? He commands the church to corporately discipline the idol. As long as the idol refuse to work, as they name Jesus as their Savior, they are not to be received into close fellowship in the church. Rather, they should be warned and then carefully avoided, according to Paul. And so as we listen to Paul here, he, he's dropping the hammer with force. He's not waffling or hesitating about the matter of work. He modeled hard work, he taught about hard work, and he held the Thessalonians accountable for their work. And this teaches us something about being a Christian, doesn't it? It teaches us this. Hard work is at the heart of being a disciple of Jesus. Jesus calls his people to be industrious workers unafraid of sweat and calluses, not shying away from heavy burdens, laboring and toiling throughout the day. This also tells us something else. It tells us that idleness is an assault upon the grace of God. By not working or to flip that around, by depending on someone else or some entity to provide for your needs, by being a taker and not a giver, you present to the world a false picture of what a disciple of Jesus looks like. There's a piece of practical help in this for us, a piece of encouragement. It is okay. Better yet, it is a righteous and good thing to get tired. 
Being tired at the end of the night, having exhausted the supplies of your strength and energy doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. Just think, Paul must have been a man who got really, really tired. He was up before dawn. He worked throughout the day with his hands. Perhaps during breaks or at evening, he would gather the believers to himself and he would instruct them in the will of God through the scriptures. As he was working, surely he was evangelizing those who who came into his place of work. On the Sabbath, he didn't even rest because he was in the synagogue preaching and teaching from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. As we think about all that Paul was doing there, at night, surely Paul would have dropped like a stone into bed. He'd have been a tired, tired man. And what does Paul say about this way of life? He says this in verse 10. Holy and righteous and blameless. So there's a piece of encouragement for you, weary Christian. Are you tired from your work? Know this from the Apostle Paul. Being tired can be holy and righteous and blameless. So that's the first description. A Christian is a giver, not a taker. Description number two. A Christian is a builder, not a destroyer. A Christian is a builder, not a destroyer. So Paul's hard work had a purpose, and we covered part of that purpose in verse 9. He worked hard so that he wouldn't take, but that he could give to the Thessalonians. But there's more to Paul's hard work here. He worked hard that he might build these people up and not destroy these people. And the tool that Paul used for his building was his mouth. Look at verse 12. Paul says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. I just want to pick out three words here. First of all, Paul exhorted the Thessalonians. What does that mean? It means that he he set the gospel and the commands of Christ before them, and he called the Thessalonians to walk in them, saying, believe this, do this, be careful to keep yourself from this, be careful to devote yourself to this. He also encouraged the Thessalonians. So not only did he set the commands of Jesus before them, but he sought to strengthen them in the commands of Jesus. Taking his words, he used them to to persuade the Thessalonians to run the race of the Christian life with vigor. Surely he'd been saying things like this. Carry on, dear brothers and sisters. Keep going. It is worth it. God will give you help. Look at all that God is doing in your midst. He will meet you with his grace. And then he charged the Thessalonians. And this is a very intense sort of speech, the sort of speech that cuts through all the noise and cuts the heart. Paul would have been speaking like this, hear me, you must believe this, you must not leave this path, you must devote yourself to this gospel. I charge you before God and in his presence, you must do this, you must live like this. Paul built up the Thessalonians and he did it with his words. He did it in person when he was with them, and when he was away, he did it through his letters. And as we look at Paul, he expects that these Christians would live like him. He expects that these Christians would use their mouths to build up the church and not destroy it. And we find this throughout the letter. There's this refrain, chapter 4, verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Chapter 5, verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Chapter 5, verse 14, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Paul envisions that these Christians would live just like 
him, using their words to build up the body of Christ. And it should be no surprise that Paul focuses in on words so much. Words for the Christian are our most important tool. It is with words we talk to God. It is with words we we speak the gospel to each other. It is with words we we strengthen each other in faith and encourage and charge each other to, to carry out the Christian life. And even more, words reveal something about us. Do you want to know a man? Do you want to know a woman? Well, you just look at what they say. Words reveal the heart. And so Paul gives us this description of a, a Christian. A Christian is a builder, not a destroyer. So we have two clear descriptions of a Christian from these four verses. A Christian is a giver, not a taker. A builder, not a destroyer. But these aren't just descriptions, something we can just look at and study and then set aside. These are more than descriptions. As we've been seeing, pairing these descriptions with the rest of the letter to the Thessalonians, we see that they are more than descriptions. They are the commands of God. So we can't handle these descriptions without hearing their their commanding force. The text of Scripture calls out to us this morning, work, toil, labor, speak, and so build up the people of God. So just describing this isn't the end of the matter for us. So... We have some more work to do. What we need to do to finish out this text is we need to look at one part of the text we haven't studied yet, and we need to look at two different temptations that meet us with all of these commands and expectations. So let's look first at two temptations that meet us. So these commands are coming at us. And there's two temptations that rise up in light of them. Some of us hear these commands from Paul, and our response is quick and eager. We say to ourselves, labor, toil, sweat, hard work. I was born for this. I've got the resources for this. Just let me at it. And that's the temptation of the go-getter. Others of us hear these commands, and, and we're deflated. We say to ourselves, labor, toil, sweat, hard work. I can't do any of that. My my tank is empty. I've I've got no energy for this. I'm fatigued. I'm tired. And so some of us hear these commands and we think we have what it takes in ourselves to get them done. And so we're eager and we're excited about them. Others of us hear these commands and think there is no possible way we can get any of this done because we look at ourselves and we don't find the resources for it. And all these temptations seem far apart. You've got the go-getter over here, ready and eager, and you've got the deflated over here, despondent. Really, both of these temptations spring from the same poisoned root, self-sufficiency. The go-getter is ready to go. Why? Because he thinks he has what he needs. And the deflated is despondent. Why? Because he thinks he doesn't have what he needs in himself. So there's two temptations. Now we need to look at the one part of our text that we haven't considered, and that's at the end of verse 12. Paul says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That is so helpful. These commands that we are getting are not a matter of self-sufficiency or naked willpower or human strength. They're not a matter of what you think you think you have or, or don't think you have. The whole way of living is possible because God has summoned you to himself through the preaching of the gospel. 
Why can the Christian live this way? Because God has summoned you to himself. One writer, John Webster, fills this out with meaning, and I want to quote him this morning because it's so helpful. He says this, We are what we are because of a determination that God has made about us, that we will be his people, that we will be extracted from the hands of sin and death and given the gifts of righteousness and life, that we will live in the fellowship of God's Son. These things are true of us because God wills that they should be so. To realize this is to come to see that there is an infinite depth to the Christian life, the life of faith, the life of the disciple of Jesus Christ, the life of obedience to the commands of God isn't a mere human undertaking, some fragile, wavering commitment of ours, some decision that we make but might well unmake if things should go differently. The miracle of the Christian faith and discipleship lies within the hands of God. We are what we are because of God. And what God does and how God decides for us, severed from that, Christian faith and commitment are just a perilous undertaking on our part, a shot in the dark. Why can't we live out Paul's commands? How can we toil, labor, and sweat? Because God has called us unto himself. And severed from that, all of this is just perilous, just a shot in the dark. And so Paul pressed upon the Thessalonians, exhorting, encouraging, charging them to obedience, and he did this not because he he thought they had the internal stuff to make it happen. He did it because he knew they were called by God, summoned by the Father himself. And in the preaching of the gospel, God himself came among the Thessalonians and spoke to them. And we have to assert that God's speech is unlike our speech. We speak, and our speech just bounces off the foreheads of people and and bounces off walls. But God's speech is so different. We can only attempt to persuade people and reason with people. Our words are often ineffectual, but God, his word, is powerful and effectual. His word is sovereign. And with his sovereign word, he took hold of the Thessalonians, freeing them from the power of sin and determining for them a new way of life and equipping them and filling them with all the gifts and graces they need for that new way of life. And brothers and sisters, hear this. This is exactly what God has done for you. He has come to you in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he has spoken directly to your soul. And with his sovereign and powerful speech, he picked you up out of your sin, and he has placed you on the path of holiness, which leads directly to his kingdom and glory. And he has fitted you by his sovereign determination with all the gifts and graces you need for this life of obedience so that you might work and labor and sweat and toil just like Paul did. Why can we do this? He calls you to his own kingdom and glory. And so brothers and sisters, I command you, labor and sweat and toil and work and build and do it because God has called you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful that you are a God who calls us to your kingdom and glory. You are so gracious in rescuing us from the domain and power of sin and transferring us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And so we ask now, at the conclusion of this sermon on hard work, that you would 
you would freshly meet us with your grace, that we might live out the calling you have placed on our lives. And we trust, because you are faithful, that you will meet us with all that we need. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.